0: hello hi john did you just sing a note no
1: to to begin the show
0: no but i I could i could if you'd like well didn't you just go no i said hi john
1: oh i didn't hear that part it got cut off but i from now on i'm gonna sing a little note when we get
0: started yeah
1: how are you well how are you pretty good i'm fine i'm good let's just let's just call a spade a spade yeah, yeah. what's the uh well let's just start right in what's the house news oh uh,
0: you said you were good i figured meant the house thing was good no no
1: no the house thing's not good i um i got excited about a house you know i've been looking now for a long time. And I had a pretty disciplined list of things I was looking for. And, uh, I was, you know, I, there are a lot, a lot of houses have come for sale, but I haven't chosen any of them because I have a clear idea what, what I'm looking for. Yeah. And that idea is based on sort of a understanding of how I've, how I live and how I want to live. um, and then I saw a house that was, you know, I have a, I have a, uh, a ceiling, a price ceiling mm-hmm. on my internet searches that was, you know, a conservative ceiling, how much I intended to spend. And, and, um, I didn't want to go over this amount, but people were showing me houses that were a little bit over the amount. And I was like, well, maybe, you know, I should maybe I should raise that a little bit. And I raised it quite a bit because I wanted to, you know, cast a wider net and this house showed up. That was a, that was a price I never would have considered, but, um, but it had a special feature, which was that it was on a lake Mm. and being on a lake had never occurred to me. It didn't seem like it was a in the realm of possibility. so it's not like a thing I'd ever put on there and um it just seemed like it would inflate the price of a house beyond reach of any normal human, yeah, particularly a lake that was close to Seattle, yeah, but I didn't here even was. know
0: Seattle was like known for having lakes a lot
1: of lakes. Well, there are quite a few lakes. There's like a huge lake, Lake Washington, uh, that borders one, you know, that defines one side of Seattle. And then there's Lake Union, which is right in the heart of the city and Green Lake. And there are some lakes, you know, like a little further out Haller Lake and Lake Burien and Lake Sammamish is a giant lake. And then there are these small lakes, Star Lake and mm. um, Steel Lake and these, you know, strange little lakes that kind of nobody knows about. Yeah. Down in the south, there's Lake Taps, which is a giant man-made lake that's surrounded by old people and Corvettes and stuff. <laughs> Old, but these other, Old people in Corvettes. Yeah, you know, the type yeah. of old people that have Corvettes. Okay, sure. But these other little sprinkly lakes are weird because they're not visible from the outside world. You drive around that neighborhood a hundred times and there's a lake back there, but there's no public access to it. It's a bunch of houses around it. And often they're, you know, they're regular houses. They're not. They haven't been turned into mega mansions. They're just like, you know, houses that were built in the fifties and sixties around a lake that at the time seemed pretty far out. Anyway, this was one of those and it blew my mind, this house. Wait a minute. I could have a house on a lake and it was an unusual house. It was too much money, but it needed to quite a bit of work. And for whatever reason, well, I know what reason, The prospect of this lake. So I went to visit the house and then, uh, before, before I'd even gotten a tour of the house, I just drove over there. The house was empty. I walked around it. I sat on the grass and looked at the lake, Uh walked down to the lake. Then I walked around the neighborhood some more, looked at the lake from various vantage points, went over to the park It's nearby sat in the park and looked at the lake and looked at the house across the lake that you could see from the park. And then I sat on the grass some more. Mm -hmm. And then I walked around and I met, you know, anytime I saw a neighbor out in their driveway, I'd stop and say, hello. And, uh, you know, this is what prompted. I sent a tweet out a couple of weeks ago that, that, um, reflected on the fact that my physical appearance yes you know my height and my gender and race uh open a lot of doors for me Mm -hmm. and this was an instance where i was walking around this neighborhood which was you know it's not a it's not a, a like an incredibly wealthy area but it's a it's a you have to be somewhat prosperous to live in these places. And a lot of the, a lot of the people around this lake are old. They either bought their house in the fifties or sixties or, or came later. But, but as grandparents, you know, kind of afford to buy a house on a lake and then your grandkids, you hope come and, and have parties there. But, you know, I can walk into somebody's driveway and say, hi there. And am almost universally greeted with, hello, mm-hmm. how may I help you? You know, I, and, and day in and day out. And I do this. It's not, it's not uncommon for me. And part of the reason is because I'm always greeted with such, uh, with, with such sort of pleasure, right? I, it's not just that I'm, that I demographically am not perceived as a threat, but you know, I. I know how to approach a stranger. Right. And, and a big part of that is probably that over the years, I demographically don't, don't present much of a threat to people. So they, you know, they say, Oh, well I'm going to give this, you know, it's like being a pretty girl. Uh, you assume that everybody, (laughs) that everybody is like, you know, the way you're treated is the way everyone is treated. Right. Anyway, so I'm meeting all the neighbors and of course it's a, it's a fairly big lake, but it's a small community. And so all the neighbors have gossip about each other. And Uh of course I love hearing people talk and I like to interview people. So pretty soon I know all about all the neighbors. And at one point, you know, there are a lot of these long driveways that have signs, you know, three different signs on the way down that say private property, keep out. And I'll just drive right down those driveways. Mm. You know, because <laughs> my whole life I've just assumed that those signs don't apply to me. And uh I'd drive down the driveways and there would be somebody that would come out of the house with a with you know their hands on their hips suspicious like may I help you? Did you not see the five different signs I said that say keep out? And I roll down my window and go, "Hello. I'm sorry to intrude." but my goodness, you have a wonderful home. I'm just in the neighborhood looking for houses and, you know, within three minutes they're leaning on, on the window of my car, telling me all about their grandkids and all the work they've done on the house. You know, it's just, um, it ends up being a a lovely afternoon for me. Right. And it involves, you know, a massive assumption on my part that, 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 no one is ever going to call the cops on me. And if they did, when the cops arrived within two minutes, they would be calling me, sir, and apologizing for having disrupted my afternoon. You know, uh-huh. sure. It's, it's, it's astonishing when you really, uh, when you really think about it, the, the way, the ease with which I coast through certain aspects of American life, mm-hmm. uh, that other people will report. Uh, that that none of that is available to them, right? right. They, do, yeah. they do not live in the same world that I live in. And it, and it could be because they're a woman, it could be because they're any other race besides like tall, graying, super Anglo dude. A guy wrote me when I sent that tweet out and he was like, you know, like this is a small portion of this, but you know, I'm a man of short stature. Like I'm... I consider myself like short, mm-hmm. like low fives. And you would be amazed at how much more difficult my life is as a result. And it's not, and no one really has that much sympathy for me because other things in my life are, are pretty good. But you know, at five, two or whatever it is, it's a burden. And I go, yeah. I get it. It would be it would be and you know, I'm, at what little sympathy I can offer you, I hear you. So, in doing this, I learned all about this neighborhood and I liked it. I liked the way that it was fairly casual, that everybody knew about each other, they all are very proud of their lake and proud of its proximity to the city and mm-hmm. proud of its affordability. Sure. And it's a liberal community, you know, all right away, you just get the feeling like, oh, these are all aging white liberals who believe in justice and equality as far as they can and until it arrives in their backyard. And even then they're, they're pretty patient about it. I mean, Seattle old elder Seattle liberals are a demographic I understand pretty well. Yeah. So I get bamboozled by all of this and I'm (laughs) like this house, I can't believe it. It's too expensive. But I talk to my real estate agent. Oh, well, and everybody around the lake says, oh, well, there's a tragedy associated with that house. The guy that built it recently died and he lived with his mother. And now she in her nineties, is the last remaining member of her family. Her husband died. Her, both of her sons died before her. And I mean, he was in his like late seventies, Yeah. but, um, so she's selling the house and she's in her nineties and it's very emotional for her. Mm-hmm. And also she's not, you know, she doesn't, her council of advisors are, her lawyer, the guy that lives next door and her real estate agent who are all older guys who are just trying to help her essentially sell this house and move into a, a, somewhere else. And she's not poor. She owns other homes. You know, she just is, this was her son's dream house that he built himself. Mm -hmm. So, I make an offer on the house and this is the first house I've made an offer on. It's the first house I've made an offer on since the farm, like a formal offer. Mm -hmm. And I do it because although there are a lot of, there's a lot of work that's needed on the house, um, like a lot of work. I feel like it's all work that I can do or mostly can do, you know, I was right away on the phone with a friend of mine that, that has a tiling business, Mm -hmm. sending him pictures of the bathroom. Like, what's it going to cost to tile all this? And he's like, wow, it's going to cost a lot, but you know what? We can, we'll figure it out. And I'm like, damn the torpedoes. And the offer that I made was significantly less than asking price. Mm Mm-hmm. I basically just said, I wouldn't have seen this house if I hadn't raised my ceiling. But having seen it, I'm gonna lower my price back to where my ceiling was. Right. Because honestly, A, that's what I can afford. And B, that's what this house is worth. The the work that needs to be done on it. There there's there's work that needs to be done to make it habitable. It's not just like, <laughs> oh, I should change these light fixtures out. Right, sure. Know? And so the way that it's priced was kind of irresponsible. The Mm -hmm. real estate agent didn't do a good job representing this lady, partly because I think emotionally she had an idea. Her son (laughs) probably thought his house was worth more than it was. But I looked at the comparables for the neighborhood, and I understood what houses were going for. And so, you know, it was significantly less, and that was bold. But they accepted it. And I continued to go to the house during all this, all this time period. I would I went at night and sat on the grass and right. watched the lake and watched the stars. I knew all the neighbors by this point. Uh, the guy down the street. At one point, I heard there was a there was an offer on the house that had sort of first dibs status. Uh-huh. but. The offer was, um, the offer was sort of made outside of the real estate agency thing. It was like a somebody had made a a casual offer and they hadn't formalized it, and so they needed to uh, they needed to m- check with that person first. Well, in walking around the lake, I start talking to a guy at one point, you know, and again he drives in he. He's unloading groceries out of his car. It's dusk. I'm walking by and say, hey there, fella. What, you know, what's the news? And we stand and talk for an hour. And he's the guy that made the offer. Ah. He's a, you know, he's a neighbor 10 doors down who thought about buying the house for his parents. And he's a Wheeler dealer. So much of a wheeler dealer that I was like, Am I getting wheeled and dealed here by this fella? But he ended up being a guy in good faith, and he told me that he was not going to make uh, he was not going to formalize his offer. So that was gonna clear the way for me. Like I had all this inside dope. Right. (laughs) So they accept (laughs) my offer. Okay. I didn't think that's how the
0: story was gonna go.
1: They accept it. And there's a lot of, from what I can tell, a lot of hand-wringing happening over on that side of the fence. But everybody is great. All the people that are helping her are grateful. They agree that 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 was a good offer, and they convinced her to take it. And so for two days, I'm elated, and I'm lining up how much it's going to cost to replace all the windows, which frankly all needed to be replaced and how much it's going to cost to finish the areas that need finishing. And at one point I realized, Oh wait, in order to like, this was a guy's dream house and he built it and it's felt very much like a bachelor pad. Right. In order to make this space work for me, I'm gonna need to build a room. there's a there's a kind of great room. and next to the great room, there's a very large ante room to the great room mm-hmm. And I'm gonna need to wall that anteroom off because what this house really is is a three bedroom house. and I have a room, and my daughter has a room. and then there's a small room that really is, in the category of guest room or home office, you know, it's not big enough to use Mm -hmm. really. There needs to be a fourth room. And so there's this space, this apps, um, that is the space of a fourth room and I'm going to need to build it. And there's no basement. And top two things on my list of 10 things was basement. Mm. The thing that I, the thing that made living at the farm the hardest for me was that there wasn't a basement. And for me, a basement is a lot of things. A basement is, hopefully unfinished space or a portion of it is unfinished space that you can work on things that you can retreat to.
0: You got to store your, your prepping stuff in there
1: that you store everything that you have, all your bins and bags. There's a giant work table where you can spread stuff out and tinker on it. And you can close the door and it's not part of the living space where people would reasonably need to transact daily life. And at the farm, there wasn't a place like that. And it ended up being the dining room table. And right in the heart of my house, there was this table that was, you know, that had five different projects on it. A sewing project and a, you know, a little building project. Project and a stack of things that needed to go in and a stack of things that needed to go out and, but also a basement is like a sanctuary, a place to go at night, Mm. you go down underground and you're in your, you're in your sort of protected area. You're, you know, like a house is, a, a you know, it was my sister, I guess, who recently pointed out that you know i didn't have a lot of safe spaces as a kid where i was able to where where i could claim it as my space and and i and i knew that i was secure there um and so that was a big part of having my own house was having a place that was safe for me and Mm -hmm. that i was the you know i was the proprietor um and and even more than that it's it's a space in a basement that is where i would um the uh, where i would feel the safest and and i know i have to have a house you know where where my daughter's bedroom is and where a kitchen is Mm -hmm. and where presumably a bedroom for me is but But the basement is where all my, all my things uh, that I'm working on would be and where I would go. So it was number two on my list of things in a house, sort of an, and it doesn't have to all be unfinished. Like there can be a little finished area, like a guest room or something, obviously the utility room. This house didn't have it. And about day two after the offer was accepted, I was sitting in the house and I realized when I made a list of the things that I loved about this house, um, they were all about the house's location. It's on the lake and the lake is by the park and the lake is close to the to the gym. And if I walk every morning to the gym and then walk home and get on a paddle board or something and go out on the lake, you know, I'll, I'll be getting exercise and I'll be, you know, the, uh, I'll have arrested this sort of feeling of ap- uh, atrophy that's happening in my middle age. And, but the house itself felt just like the farm. 10 unfinished projects that were of a scale larger than I could. You know, I couldn't bite off any one of those projects and get it done over a weekend. They all were going to involve contractors. They all were going to involve a period where the house was all torn apart. The house wasn't landscaped. It was just, like bare earth, no, (laughs) no patio, no deck. You You stepped out the back door into bare earth and that bare earth just was a giant pile all the way down to the lake. And all of that would need to get addressed somehow. I mean, it's not like it's not an emergency, but it would, it's a project, a big project. Yeah, it is. And so, this was the thing about the farm that drove me crazy. Like those big projects. When I moved in, I said, well, I'll get to those projects one at a time. And I really never did, but it's not like they went away. It's not like I forgave those projects and, and said, well, I don't need to ever fix that or, you know, or get that working. And so I lived in this, in this like, Cyclone of, of feeling unfinished, unresolved Mm -hmm. projects spread everywhere and none of them done unfinished album, unfinished college degree, unfinished book, unfinished (sighs) barn. Yeah. And, and I just got this shock, like all this discipline I'd been practicing in searching Knowing that houses came up, and I looked at them, and I went, you know, it's a beautiful house. It's it, it's affordable. It would be a good place, but it doesn't have any of the things on my list, or it doesn't have important things on my list. And so, no, right. And I just threw it. It's just all gone. This lake, and it's a and it's a wonderful lake. But I realized, oh no, like I just, I just really burden myself and, and I'm, and I'm walking in like all excited about these projects, but that's not how it ends up. And at that moment, another house came on the market across town and this house was Right in the heart of the neighborhood I'd been looking in for a year. Yeah. And it ticked off every box of all the things I'd been looking for. Yeah. And in looking at it, it just, it just doubled down on the fact that the house that I just made an offer on and, and had that offer accepted was none of those things.
0: We would like to say thank you very much to Brooklinen for making this show possible. You know, making your home beautiful. This is the ultimate form of self-care, and that's what we talk about here on, uh, on the program. You spend a third of your life in your sheets. They should be comfortable. This is, this is what Brooklinen is all about. When, they, when you sleep, they want you to sleep well on hotel-quality sheets that don't cost an arm and a leg. Brooklyn and Sheets named the winner of the best of online bedding category by Good Housekeeping. Can you believe it? I couldn't believe it until I got the Brooklyn and Sheets, put them on our bed. Oh my God, they are amazing. They really are. And it does make a difference. I don't know if it's psychological. I don't know if it's physical and I don't care. Having really nice sheets makes you feel better. It makes you want to be in bed. It makes the experience of sleeping better. And ever since we got them, I, I refuse to use any other sheets. I I know I should probably get another set because they're the only ones I will now allow on the bed. They're that good. And I'm not joking. This is real. The company was started in like 2014 by a husband and wife who wanted to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg, luxury sheets, towels, Betting and more without the luxury markup. Most betting is marked up as much as 300%. They said, no, not here, not going to do it. And in fact, they're doing something even better for you guys, the listeners. BrookLinen.com is giving a special offer 10% off and free shipping when you use the promo code RoadWork at BrookLinen.com. I'll spell it for you B R O O K Linen, N.com. promo code RoadWork. Go there and you'll get 10% off and free shipping. But don't forget, it's not just sheets. They have comforters, which are equally amazing. They have towels. All the things that you want around you to make your life a little nicer, they have that and they all come with a lifetime warranty. So go to brooklinen.com, use the promo code ROADWORK, save 10% off and get free shipping. How can you beat that? I say you can't. Thanks very much to Brooklinen for making this show possible.
1: I've never made an offer and changed my mind. I made an offer on the farm, my old house in 2007. And that offer was accepted and I bought it. Oh,
0: I thought there was another one recently that you had made an offer on that
1: didn't work out too. There was the house that I put, I wrote a letter and put it under the guy's door and said, sell me your house. Okay. Ding a ling. All right. And he and I talked back and forth several times before he, Before he texted me and said, no, I'm going to keep this house and fuck it all up, Mm -hmm. ruin it for everybody. Right. But that was never a, that was never a formal offer. No, this was the only offer. Anyway, so I went to see the other house and also a lovely house and one that was just like, did I want this? Yes. Did I want that? Yeah. I mean, this is like a house that if it had come on the market two weeks prior, mm-hmm. I would have said to my real estate agent, let's make an offer on this house. Sure. Let's buy this. House. But now, not only is it casting doubt on the decision to buy the lake house, but the lake house is making this house look, uh, I'm seeing the, I'm seeing cracks in it. I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And then we call that the cliff house here. Uh-huh. The cliff house was designed for people who liked cocktails <laughs> and who liked cocktails in the mid 1960s. Ah, oh, Right. It was designed for people who um who were on the board of the local museum society who had people over for drinks after the big meeting or they had the meeting there and so it was a large house but most of the space was given over to public space. You could have 75 people in the two adjoining living rooms and the, and the deck that connected them and the, and the kitchen and the dining room, you'd have 75 people in there drinking and you wouldn't even really notice like the room, the, the rooms upstairs, the, the public rooms, could absorb an entire board of directors and spouse, all their spouses. There was a big built in bar. There was a sunken living room. There was a door off the kitchen for your catering staff. Like it was Brady Bunch house. Yeah. Now it hadn't been restored. You know, the way that how the heating was provided to the house was, a thing that's fairly common in these outlying neighborhoods it's uh, where the furnace heats water and then pumps water throughout the house it's basically a an old radiator system except the radiators look like baseboard heat they look like electric baseboard heat it's just they have hot water running through them right well that's a system that works uh, but if it breaks down, it's a lot weirder to deal with than like forced air, for instance. I mean, a forced air furnace just makes hot air and pushes it all the way through the house. It's not going to, the furnace could break, but the forced air system isn't really. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that's going to happen is that a rat is going to die in there and then it's <laughs> going to push some stinky forced air for all right. a, a week and a half until that rat dries up. But this whole radiator system, it's always like, when I see it in a house, I'm like always astonished. Wow, this was really a system that that they wanted to, that they, they thought was like modern and and efficient in the early 60s, mid 60s. So this house just had, it had so much glamour, which is a thing that I would want. I I want a certain amount of glamour because I'm I'm 51 years old this week and none of these houses are are um, expensive by Seattle standards. They're expensive, but in Seattle right now, these houses are the same price as a two bedroom apartment in the city. Right. And so everything in a person's economy living in Seattle has to, you know, it has to reflect the fact that money is worth a different thing here. It's just like a pack of cigarettes in New York costs $10 or whatever it costs. Who knows? It might be $15 by now. I don't know. And a pack of cigarettes in North Carolina costs a dollar. Right. I don't know if that's true still too but <laughs> it used to be that that it was it was those were the two extremes. A pack of cigarettes in New York was 10 times what it was in North Carolina and if you talked about the expense of living in New York it wasn't just your rent it was that everything. So you know so deciding to move out to 200th has been a decision that I used to kind of scoff at. People would, I would say, why do you live out in Puyallup or Auburn or Everett or something? People would say, well, you can get a lot more house out there. And I would say, but you spend all that money driving into town. You spend all that money in, you spend all that money just in the agony of living in the suburbs. Why would you? Well, here I am. Moving to 200th in order to get, more house and so so this this glamorous house and you know and I'm buying a, I'm I'm looking for unrestored houses from the 60s you know I'm getting into these I'm getting into these houses knowing that there's that most buyers don't want them because to other buyers they look like they need Eighty thousand dollars, or a hundred thousand dollars to be livable, mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable living in an old kitchen where the cabinets are stained by grubby hands, opening those doors for seventy years. Like I want that.
0: <laughs> you. That's your. That's what you're looking for. That's your mo.
1: Yeah, I yeah. want orange linoleum countertops. I want. Um, I want a bathroom that. I want a blue bathtub and a matching toilet and all that stuff. You know, I know that, that that there's going to be work involved, but it's not work like making it livable. It's, it's maintenance. Keep the thing going. I saw, I saw a house the other day that had a dishwasher in it. That was from the earliest days of in-home dishwasher. And it looked it, you know, it, it looked like a Jetsons thing Mm -hmm. and it, and it was completely impractical as a dishwashing device, but I would love it. I would love washing my dishes in this, in this thing that, you know, that probably sounded like a model a, like, you know, like so great. Anyway, looking at this house and, and, and picturing the cocktail parties, the bouffant hairdos and the and the go-go boots, or you know the men in suits and women with white gloves on—that that surely happened in this place. And there's so much to love about the those reverberations. But that house was impractical for me. There was no unfinished space in the basement for lack of a better thing. All the space of the house was given over to the glamor and there was no space for me to, to do work, to put my guitars and to make loud music Mm -hmm. and to have a big table with things strewn all over it. And I just got this sort of crash where I said, because, you know, there was an inspection done on the lake house and the inspector was like, wow, really? You want to move into this? (laughs) And my real estate agent said, you know, based on that inspection, if you, if you want to get out of that offer, you can, um, And we can make an offer on this cliff house. And I said, I do want to get out of that lake house offer. And I don't want to make an offer on the cliff house. Mm -hmm. Like I just need to, I felt so, I felt so chagrined and like humiliated that I had gotten excited and made an offer on this lake house and realized after I'd done it, that that I'd sort of betrayed all of my criteria and you know, it was basically like I saw, I saw a beautiful girl who was visibly a hot mess and her, her beauty made me sort of overlook the fact that I, that I immediately knew the relationship would be a disaster. So I canceled my offer and and stepped back and am now just kind of sitting in a place where I don't have a lot of hope. And I feel like maybe I'm, maybe I'm deluded. I mean, all those places, both the lake house and the cliff house were, absolutely at the top end of what I could conceivably afford. It would have been insane for me to buy either house Mm -hmm. because I changed the settings on my app. I wouldn't have even seen these houses. You know, I was talking to the bank and the bank was like, well, we cannot loan you what you need. The problem is the banks won't loan me money because I'm an independent musician so banks take all of my financial records that say I've never missed a mortgage payment in 12 years that say I have a credit rating of 800 I've never missed a payment of right. any kind right and i sold my house in advance of of buying another house because the banks told me that i that they wouldn't loan me money unless i'd sold my house and had you know a larger down payment than i mean uh, the offer that i made i i was putting every penny i had into it right and then the bank still said well we can only you know cover this much of it you know that was that was where all these like lowball offers were coming from because I was gonna lowball the cliff house too out of you know just out of necessity mm-hmm. so I retreated back to like well maybe maybe you go back to to a different take and you and I've talked about it. Maybe you move out to 300th or maybe you, what are you going to sacrifice? You know, you know that you can't sacrifice the basement. We've just discovered that because you tried and you know, I miss that Lake house already. I miss my neighbors there. They were really lovely. That was a good neighborhood for me the cliff house isn't any kind of neighborhood. It just sits up on a cliff. It would be a place that I, that I sat and just shot my shotgun into the sky. Mm -hmm. Well, the, a week after the old lady put the lake house back on the market and she lowered the price, not all the way down to the price that, that, um, That I'd offered, but sort of met in the middle, which I felt like it's still overpriced old lady, but you know, at least you kind of got a reality check there and the lake or the cliff house after it sat on the market for a week, they raised the price by an astronomical amount. They raised the price up to where the old lady had had her house. Mm. And I don't know. I mean, and I, you can guess what happened. Their real estate agent told them, well, we'll put the house on the market at this price and then it's going to go through the roof. You're going to get multiple offers and you're going to make a lot more. And that's kind of what they told me about my farm too. It's a hot market. You're going to put your house on the market at this low price, and then it's going to blow up. You're going to get all these offers, a bidding war. You're going to make all this money. And I put my house on the market, and I didn't get a single offer for a month. And it was, I have to say, it was dispiriting because I'd already started to spend all the additional money. Mm -hmm. And and by spend, I mean, it enabled me to make a down payment on a house where I would have a reasonable mortgage. And that's the crazy thing about all of this is that interest rates are down. And when I sold my house, I had, I'd made this money and it, it was not, it was fake money in a way. It didn't. It wasn't money that enabled me. I didn't. I couldn't spend it. I couldn't take it to Tahiti. I mean, I could have. But this is how wealth is created. When I bought this house, I had a little windfall from when I bought the farm. I had a little windfall from having made um, a couple of car commercials. You know, the car, car couple of car commercials used Long Winter songs. We had a song on The O.C and one on Gilmore girls. And you know, there was like, I got a windfall. I went from making $900 a year to having this little lump sum. And it was a lump sum that if you amateurized it over the course of my music career, it added up to about $3 an hour, (laughs) but it, but it was, you know, a little, a little blob. And I put it all into a house, just took the whole amount, made a down payment, and because it was the go-go Washington Mutual years, mm-hmm. the the bank did loan me money then.
0: What year about
1: was that? Just two thousand seven.
0: Seven, yeah. That and was the, back in the time when li- literally you could just make a phone call and get a three hundred thousand dollar loan.
1: Yeah, and the and the mortgage guy was like, "Well, you're putting twenty percent down and want a standard thirty year loan? Why don't if you?" you know, if you got a adjustable rate mortgage, right. Uh, you could, you know, you could only put 4% down or, or you could get a house twice this expensive. And I was like, no, thank you. I mean, I, it's not that I, I mean, I just knew when they explained what an adjustable rate mortgage was, where they were like, yeah, in a few years, that mortgage will come due at whatever the interest rates are then. So it's a little bit of a gamble. And I was like, no, thank you. That sounds sketchy. I just want, I'm going to put 20% down. I want a 30 year mortgage, just the regular thing. And interest rates were 4%, four and a half or something, which everybody said, oh, this is great interest rates. And I was like, great. And I, you know, I made my payments. The market crashed, of course, and my house wasn't worth very much for a while. You know, lost all my money in a way. Right. But then the market came back. The rental market went crazy. And pretty soon, my mortgage payment was less than my friends were paying for their apartments. And it seemed savvy. It was basically like I'd locked in a cheap rent in a town that had gotten expensive. So, when I sold it, I'd made money and a kind of money that i didn't have to you know that it was basically like your house is an investment because i was paying the same amount that anybody else would have been paying to live in seattle it's just i got this money out of it and my friends that had been renting that whole time hadn't made money right so it was like a shock to me to see it so boldly oh i'm even though i don't have any? Even though from week to week, I'm not confident in in the fact that I'm earning enough to live. Even though all last year I did omnibus and friendly fire for basically nothing, selling my house, I had this money. Well, the only thing you could do with that money is putting it back into real estate. Mm-hmm. You know, buy something else with it. But what it enabled me to do was buy a house. Interest rates are much lower now. They're three and a quarter. Put that money into a house. And then my mortgage payment would actually be about the same as it had been a little bit more, but about the same as, as it had been for the farm. Like I would take the money, put it into a, another house, pay the same amount every month. And, but put it into a, a better house, a different house where the, whereas the city expanded as people, as houses out at 200 started to be working, you know, selling for more that I would, that that wealth would grow. And mm-hmm. you know, this is the only thing that I have, the only retirement I have, right? right. There's that's no, your, that's your thing. I got nothing else. I got no 401k. I got no, I don't own anything or I haven't put any money away. I got, you know, I'm 51 and it's not a, it's not a thing that at 51 you can be unconscious of. Yeah. And again, most of my artist friends are at 51, not putting money away either. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And they're starting to get scared. And and rightfully so. I mean, it's not like they made bad decisions. I mean, that windfall I got. I mean, these were the guys that laughed at me all those years. They were making three hundred dollars a night as bartenders, and I was working at Steve's Broadway News for four twenty-five an hour. But I quit smoking and I quit drinking, and so I didn't have I didn't have all the expenses that they did either. But it's just like the little, it's just little twists and turns. Like the amount of money that I made in that, in that little windfall back in 2006, I'd watched a lot of people get a little windfall like that Mm -hmm. and buy some cool things, you know, buy some guitars or buy a cool car or whatever, you know, whatever it seems like in your, in your late twenties or thirties is what you need. And, you know, and what I needed, what I wanted was a, was a home or a place. Right. More than anything else. Anyway, so the banks like forcing me to sell, refusing to loan me money at this point, you know, I mean, they loan me some money, but like basically the amount of money I have in cash, they will loan me. Um, and that if I combine both things, but it means that I put 50% down, but, but it was so, it's so confusing to me that my mortgage payment would be about the same. You know, it seems like a thing that if I don't, that if I don't do it, something is going to go sideways on me, you know, like, how can this be possible? Almost. Money is cheaper to borrow now. Mm -hmm. Not forever. Who knows whether interest rates. will? you know, they were interest rates were 15% in the 1980s. And they're three and a quarter now. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's bonkers. So, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I knew all this abstractly but realizing that this is my retirement this is how i'm going to be 80 it's it's 100% this however i manage this transaction right now is is how i'm going to you know be 80 and not living in squalor
0: How many houses have you looked at so far? Oh, 60. 60. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. Um, it's, exa- it's exhausting. I looked at 85 before I Ugh. found the one I'm in now. And I mean, Ugh. I'm not talking about like pull up and kind of, yeah, that one looks like all right. I mean, like went inside and walked around and looked at it and read about it. And it's crazy.
1: And it doesn't,
0: it doesn't seem like you should have to look at that many.
1: Well, except that I, except that I'm trying to do something that's, you know, I'm trying to, to do something that's over my pay grade. And it's not that I'm trying, I'm not trying to sneak, you know, and I'm not trying to, to get a garbage house and flip it. You know, I'm looking for a home. And. And I also do this other thing, which is if I see a house that I'm interested in, I walk around the neighborhood and I, you know, I go lift up the lids on the garbage cans and see what people are throwing away. And I go there at night and walk around at night and listen to what it sounds like. Are there barking dogs? Are there, is there a, a street nearby that is loud? What's the air traffic? Yeah. Yeah. Like, is there a party house? I talk to the neighbors. I ask him, I ask him weird questions. I ask them, you know, kind of like, Hey, I know this sounds personal, but this house over here has got some weird art. Is there, what's going on there? You know, and then listen to them rant about their weird neighbor that, that is a sculptor. And, um. So it's, so it's not just like follow a real estate agent into a listing and walk around. Like I've gotten to know not all 60 of those houses, but I've gotten to know a couple dozen neighborhoods where I, where I, where I park my car in front of the house and I walk to the nearest store. I walk to the nearest public transit, see what the walk is like, see how long it takes. because I don't want to do what I did last time, which is buy a house where I couldn't walk anywhere or I had, where I was surrounded by unfinished projects, you know, a a place that I atrophied because I'm not married and I don't have somebody that, (laughs) you know, that every morning I wake up with and they say, here's what you, here's what you were doing today. Um, I wake up and I'm only married to the voice in my head that goes, you're a piece of shit. (laughs) And I go, great. I guess I should make some coffee. (laughs) You know, I, I need some, (laughs) when I wake up in the morning, I need something. And that was what the lake, the lake was like. It stood out there. And every morning I hoped it would say, good morning. I'm a lake. Come down and look for frogs. And maybe you'll have a paddleboard and maybe every day, or maybe you'll buy a little boat. And row out to the center of the lake every morning with your coffee and watch the weather. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about a lake. You just sit and watch the weather. The weather comes across the lake.
0: So, I mean, obviously, the location is the most important thing for you. And you have some certain criteria that you want around that. But you also don't want a house that you've got to spend too much time, effort, and money making livable. Yeah. That doesn't. House, but do you have, I mean, obviously you've got a budget in mind and you've got a, probably a square foot type situation in mind. That can vary. But you know, it also seems like, I mean, you, you're somebody who like, you're not, there are a lot of people I know a lot of people, especially these days who are content to just kind of chill out in their house and not, you know what I'm saying? Not not like they're happy to work from home. They're happy to spend most of their time at home. Once in a while, you know, they go to get provisions, then they come back. But you are you are very active in your community in Seattle. It sounds like you go to Seattle downtown quite frequently. You're seeing shows a lot out you're meeting with people on a regular basis. You frequently have people coming to your house to record or other things like that. So I, I mean, whenever you talk about moving further out to get what you want, I feel like you'll, you'll find the house that you want. If you were to go out to you're at 300 now, if you were to go out to 600, if there is such a thing, you're going to find tons of what you want, I bet, out that way. But now you're too far, right? You're too distant yeah, no. from the the other things that are important to you. Do you suspect, though, that those things will change as you get older? In other words, you're 50-something, 51 now. What about when you're 60? Do you think you'll still go to concerts as often? Will you st- because the whole thing about buying a house, you try anyway, right? You're trying to make a decision for... More than a couple years, you're trying to make a long-term decision when you're getting that house, although it's possible to buy it and flip it in three years or five years. Realistically, you want to try and make it last as long as possible, right?
1: Well, yeah, but if I disengage completely from the city, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's healthy. Again, I'm not married, so... When someone says, Hey, I've got tickets to Brian Ferry. Or when someone says, do you want to see Lionel Richie? Or when someone says we're having a meeting over dim sum to figure out what the name of our craft brew is going to be our hilarious comedy craft brew. (laughs) Right. Um, Like I have to go to those meetings. And the thing is like, I've stepped back from the music commission the Music Commission started as a place where we were trying to we were trying to figure out a way to support professional musicians and make Seattle a livable city and one where musicians could make a living. But the Music Commission became a political place and it's very difficult to do that job that the Music Commission was founded to do and what is easier to do is for it to morph, which it has done. Into a group of people who are talking all the time about uh, education, getting the kids, helping the kids, because that's quantifiable and no politician is going to vote against the kids, you know, or they do all the time. But, you know, that's a, that's a compelling argument that you can make at city hall. It was always harder to go to city hall and say, Working musicians contribute to the economy. Working musicians are an enterprise level sector as much as restaurants in a way, you know, because we bring millions and billions of dollars to the city economy and we need and musicians and the music business, the music industry, and also musicians themselves who are different from the music industry they need si- They need special dispensation from the city. That's an incredibly hard argument to make over time, mm-hmm. because people in politics look at musicians and they think, that's eh, it's a bunch of dirtbags." But now I go to music commission meetings, and they're talking about, you know, how to make a music a career for kids in high school, how to support kids. And I'm like, fuck the kids, you know, that the, the way that you get to be a musician is you start as a kid and you, and you struggle. I mean, we don't need a bunch of fucking normals in the arts. That's not what we need. What we need is the, is the people who have decided to be artists who have struggled to be artists. We need to give them a little bit of not a leg up, but just like a you know, meet them halfway. Every other nation in the developed world funds the arts because they recognize the value of arts. And in America, we don't because of the Reagan administration, frankly. Yeah. Anyway, so I've disengaged from the music, although I'm still a commissioner because I feel like, there are not any working musicians here. What there are, are a bunch of educators and they're making uh, who have been appointed in recent years and they're making it into this thing. That's like support arts education, which is a thing that I don't fucking frankly give a shit about
2: mm-hmm.
1: the schools are, you know, like go to the school district and make your case. The schools have budgets. The schools need to teach music, but that's a small part of, what the music commission should be concerned with, but in, in quitting, going to those meetings and I, you know, I quit them not because I was disgusted, but I had, once I started podcasting every day, Uh it's, it always takes up the center of my day and the music commission meetings were always lunchtime meetings because everybody else has got a freaking job. And so they go to lunch And they and these meetings are always kind of catered with a lunch and they sit and deliberate and then they go back to work. But for me, it's like, it's kind of onerous to go downtown at noon. And, but it was a thing that got me out, got me engaged. I was at not just these board meetings, but at events. And when I pulled back from it, I noticed a decline in my, in my engagement at a, uh, on a weekly basis. When I was King Neptune for four straight months, (laughs) I did something every single day. And a lot of the time I woke up and was like, Oh my God, I got to go do that thing. But you know, once you get there and you're, and you settle in, you're like, yeah, I'm super glad that I went to this. This was great. That's how
0: I feel about almost everything. Yeah. Especially if I have to go like on a trip, because like you go on a trip, you're like, yeah, what did I book this eh, thing for? Eh, to deal with the airplane. And then all of a sudden you're sitting on the plane, planes taking off. You're like, this is going to be great. Yeah.
1: Right. And, and, um, a lot of this stuff is, there is no direct connection to my career. You know, when John Hodgman goes out, he's got a book he's selling. Hajiman doesn't really, I mean, in New York, I think he goes and does events all the time that are, is he based in uh, New York? Yeah. And he does this type of thing. He goes and MCs a book reading. He goes and interviews an author and I do that stuff too. Although I'm not, I don't have a book to sell, you know, And, and even if he's not selling the book, the book is in the background and really all I'm selling is a, is a catalog of music that's, That's 15 to 20 years old, and these podcasts. It's the only way I make money. And I don't make much money from that music anymore. But I do all these events, you know, being King Neptune didn't bring a single freaking listener to the podcasts, Mm -hmm. but it kept me alive and it gave me, it gave me energy, you know, it made me feel connected I, I and I hope I'm doing good. I really felt that m- my tenure as King Neptune did good in the world. It made seafare interesting for that year and it made the it made those engagements interesting. Mm-hmm. And I met a lot of you know high-ranking people in the military who I think had a better understanding of the c- civilians um, because most of the civilians that they meet are people who have contracts with the military. Mm-hmm. They're people who used to be in the military who now run a business selling pipe fitters, pipe fittings. Right. And I mean, I met a lot of those people who are like, well, I was a captain in the Navy and I retired and now I'm, president and CEO of general <laughs> pipe fittings <Inc. laughs> right. and our main contractor or our arm, all our contracts are with the Navy. And the reason I'm president and CEO of it is I was in the Navy. And so when I retired, they offered me a job and I said, yes. And so there's a lot of interaction with civilians, but all at that level and, and, you know, local dignitaries, the mayor of, 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 place X and the business people who come out to meet the Admiral, but they don't meet any artists and they definitely don't meet anybody who is a little like who, who takes a lighthearted um, tone with the whole idea of their rank and of the military in general. And you, and I could see that it was fun for them and it was fun for me. Mm-hmm. And I walked away from it, knowing more about the military and understanding that a lot more about who those people are and what their, what their motivations are. And it lets me read the newspaper in a better way. It lets me look at the, look at geopolitics and go, I met that Admiral and I had a kind of, kind of confidential conversation with them. And I recognize they're a human being and the the bullshit that they're spouting right now in this press conference is something that they're obligated to do. But like I've had an actual conversation with them about what would happen if they were ordered to do something they didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't I was I was not interviewing them. I was I was cut, huddled with them in the corner of a cocktail party. So. I can't move out to 300th and live out there and have friends say, Hey, I'm coming through town. I'm playing tonight and be like, Oh Jesus, it's a freaking hour to get in. Right. Exactly. I can't do that. So whatever I do, it has to be, I want to, I want to be far enough out that I can find some ramshackle place that has room for me to, to kind of explode my mind out into space and then try to collect it back and leave the bad parts out leave them sitting in a bin somewhere or or take that bin and give it to the goodwill or throw it in a fire but i need to go into town when somebody says hey the admiral will be here for six hours and he thought you might want to get a coffee and be like, I'll be there in 20 minutes. Like that's not when I'm 60, when I'm 70, I have to keep doing that because I'm an introvert, you know, like I'm not, I'm fighting my nature every one of those times just just fighting it with a with a boat paddle and saying no i i can't i have so many so many friends on the internet side of things like on the rock and roll side everybody recognizes this is what we do we have to we have to go out we have to make public appearances it's our job you know, I just saw not a surf just posted a thing like we're going back on tour. Like the Eric from the fruit bats just listed his tour dates for the fall and it would exhaust a 20 year old. But on the internet side of my friends, and I don't mean the show business side, I mean the internet side. I see a lot of people who have decided that the internet is sufficient And that their agoraphobia, that they're going to start, or they did start a long time ago, nursing it, nursing their agoraphobia, treasuring it as their friend. And I, you know, I feel like that would be the path to me being an insane person. Yeah. I don't want to go, honestly, I don't want to go meet the admirals. I want to stay home. I want to stay home and look at my phone. But uh, I also don't want to die at 65. You know, I don't want to feel my muscles uh, waste away, any of them.